Good evening, everybody. This, this is the part of the AAR uh, when we're on the, the second half and people start to get tired. And so I appreciate your, your energy and being out this time of the evening. It's starting to be dinner time. Your tummies are growling. And so we appreciate you sharing uh, your attention with us uh, because it's our opportunity to recognize uh, the current uh, uh, cohort of uh, AAR Loose Fellows in Religion and International Affairs. Um, this session is a co-sponsored uh, presentation of the Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion and the Applied Religious Studies Committee. Uh, and so our, our job tonight is twofold. First, to hear from the current fellows about their work and their experience um, bringing their religion expertise into various uh, public policy domains. Uh, and also to think about what that means as a space for uh, folks studying religion and who are interested in bringing their expertise uh, to, to career trajectories beyond and outside uh, of the, the academic institutional confines that sometimes uh, constrain what we actually do as scholars and researchers and, and advocates for, for the issues that we know most about. So I'd like to um, take a brief moment to introduce each of our panelists and we'll go in order of the um, listed in the, in the program, uh, and each panelist will have an opportunity to say a little bit about what their experience uh, was uh, in their fellowship, or, or, or perhaps is, uh, and then uh, after everybody's had a chance to speak, we might have a quick uh, bit of dialogue among the panelists before we open it up to some audience uh, Q&A. So first speaking will be Asher uh, Orkabi. Uh, he has a PhD in history from Harvard University. Uh, uh, Oxford University Press published his book, Beyond the Arab Cold War, in 2017. His fellowship placement has been at the National Democratic Institute, uh, where he focuses on the peace plan for Yemen uh, and uh, with particular consideration of Yemen's religious and tribal histories. Susan Abadian uh, holds a PhD in political economy and governance from, uh, from Harvard University. She also has an MPA in international development uh, from Harvard's Kennedy School and an MA in anthropology uh, also from Harvard University. Uh, her professional focus has been on healing collective trauma and on post-conflict reconciliation. Uh, her fellowship placement was at the U.S. Department of State's uh, Office for International Religious Freedom, uh, where her portfolio includes preventing and countering violent extremism, atrocity prevention, post-conflict reconciliation, and renewal. Uh, Unable to join us tonight because of uh, health issues is Marin Milligan. Uh, she holds a PhD in political science from the University of Maryland, uh, and her AAR uh, loose fellowship in international affairs placement was at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, uh, where she uh, has been helping to advance partnerships with religious uh, communities and actors. Um, responding will be Sarah Kamali, who holds a PhD in religious studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the Oriental Institute, University of Oxford. Uh, her research focuses on religious violence as well as religious literacy uh, and interfaith engagement. She's also the founder and executive director of Forget Me Not International, a U.S.-based charity with a mission to educate and empower orphans worldwide. Uh, and I'm looking forward especially to her remarks as they help us put a focus on the application of religion expertise outside uh, the, the academic domains. So join me in welcoming and, and congratulating our fellows. First, I want to thank Evan for organizing this. Uh, it's really nice when uh, you're out in the field uh, doing all this work to realize that there's a cohort of people who are very similar situations and we can support each other, uh, bounce ideas off each other, and uh, otherwise just have that 
moral support knowing that there are others going through that uh, similar learning curve and transition between the academia and uh, policy. So uh, we've all been there in dissertation tunnel vision where we work on really minute topics uh, that uh, are of interest perhaps to three people on your committee, perhaps to more than that. Uh, but you uh, invest five years, sometimes eight, sometimes ten, depending on how long your dissertation is taking you. Uh, and then finally you finish it and maybe it's published as a book and you hope that a few people read it. Uh, but there's no real clear path to translating that academic work into policy work, into something that would uh, be of interest to Washington, D.C., for instance. Uh, but sometimes global events uh, give you those opportunities. Uh, and that uh, was, uh, in my case, I'd worked on uh, tribal and religious conflicts in Yemen during the 1960s. The current conflict in Yemen is essentially the tail end of a civil war that began with my uh, dissertation topic and is ongoing currently. Uh, and this opened opportunities also uh, gave me that impetus that uh, there were maybe a handful, maybe five or ten uh, Yemeni experts all across the country that there was a need for that public academic. There was a need for me to enter into the foray to give my own analysis of the Yemen conflict. Uh, and that's specifically because the majority of the policy world, the majority of media, usually divides both Yemen and the Middle East into this binary conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It was known, uh, it's known in, in current media as the New Arab Cold War. And notice the title of uh, my book was Beyond the Arab Cold War. Right? Uh, very similar kinds of uh, efforts of looking beyond these binary conflicts that often just have two different players. And you can see here Yemen divided between Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran, this Sunni and Shi'i religious conflict uh, that the media simplified uh, the majority of the conflict to. Uh, but after all these years of researching Yemen, working in Yemen, uh, research, researching its tribal and religious conflicts, I don't see Yemen as two colors, but I see it as something far more complicated, uh, something that uh, is divided amongst many tribes, amongst many religious differences, uh, and something that does not at all resemble the binary colors of uh, U.S. and global media. Uh, so with this impetus and uh, all, this, all these years spent uh, researching Yemen, uh, I first started to get my feet wet about three years ago in uh, translating this academic work, this academic literature, into uh, public policy papers. And started with just an article or two in Foreign Affairs, eventually ballooned into dozens of articles in Foreign Affairs, National Interest, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Forbes magazine, which was my favorite. Uh, and everything in between. Uh, these things can be really addictive because normally, uh, what, what's the time frame on some of the journals that you submit to now? Maybe 24 months uh, between when you actually submit it for review and it actually gets published. It's a long time. 24 hours sounds much better. Uh, and you submit something, you write it, uh, you throw it in, uh, 24 hours later, it's out there. And it's not just being read by maybe 15 people who accidentally clicked on your link to your article, but it's read by 15,000 people who uh, will not only read your article, but then invite you over for talks, uh, email you afterwards with comments uh, in a real-time basis. Uh, and in some cases, we're talking about up, upwards of half a million people reading uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, for example. Uh, and this is, uh, it's easy to get lost in something like this, because as an academic, when we're used to very few people being interested in what we're doing, uh, and suddenly you have a 
very large uh, array of different individuals, organizations, uh, media outlets who are very interested in what you have to say, uh, it's a real ego boost for an academic, right? It really gets you going and it's really addictive. Uh, but you can get lost in these weekly uh, media bits, right? Uh, there's only so many times you can be on CNN and MSNBC without saying like, okay, where am I going with this? Uh, so then along comes the AAR Loose Fellowship and presented uh, me individually and uh, the academic world in general with this really unique opportunity to find a basis, uh, a very a home base in DC through which you can find the mentorship necessary to navigate both DC and this public policy world. Uh, and I found mine in uh, the National Democratic Institute. Uh, I had worked with them beforehand uh, on a Yemen-related conference uh, and called up the uh, managing director of the Middle East Division uh, and said, uh, Les, uh, would you like to have me as a fellow for the year? And he says, great, what's the catch? And I said, there is none. Uh, you just need to uh, be open to the fact that an academic is coming into the National Democratic Institute, and maybe we'll try to do things a little differently. So the NDI had a long history, about 30 years of working in Yemen, uh, and specifically in political development, uh, political party uh, creation, uh, supported oversaw elections for the past 30 years, uh, and still had an office in the capital city of Sana'a. And here I came into this uh, group with this grand vision of coming up with a uh, comprehensive peace plan uh, for Yemen uh, that we would then pitch to international organizations and to those parties on the ground. Uh, and the idea was to uh, better understand the tribal and religious conflicts that underlie the political violence. Uh, what's the civil war in Yemen really about? Uh, what do these northern tribesmen want? Uh, what's their uh, essential grievance against the Yemeni Republic? Uh, and then how can we properly address that in order to translate this political violence uh, into uh, substantive political dialogue? And that's what uh, I've been doing for the past year with uh, NDI and uh, have really uh, found both that mentorship to realize where and how I should be publishing all these uh, public policy papers uh, which media outlets to speak to, which ones should I not be speaking with, et cetera. Uh, and uh, also giving uh, an opportunity as an academic to uh, translate uh, what I've learned in university and throughout all these years of writing uh, my first book and working on that dissertation, uh, to translate that into a language and the length of, uh, of language that uh, the policy world would understand. So it took a while to realize that uh, when the team asked me for a background paper on a particular region or a tribe. They didn't want a 50-page uh, dissertation-like article that would give me sources and varying opinions and arguments. They wanted one page. Uh, one page, uh, distilled arguments, everything that they would need to sound really, really smart when they needed to meet with the people that needed to be convinced that NDI was smart. Uh, and you give them this one page and you distill 50 pages of an academic argument into bullet points. That took a while to learn, but once I did, uh, it got into the point where it wasn't just these uh, individual one-pagers, but it was uh, lectures given to the team before we went out into the field, before we went out to track to diplomacy in Beirut. Uh, there was an effort to uh, better understand the parties that we were dealing with, uh, have a full intelligence report, based on intelligence academic report on every person that we were meeting, 
Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, getting to uh, the field and actually seeing the way all that academic research that I've done and continue to do actually translates into the field. Uh, so what's the obstacle to more people uh, going this route? Obviously, part of it is some of our topics are so esoteric that no amount of global conflict could possibly create a situation where they would be relevant. That being said, uh, the obstacles are not within Washington, D.C., and not within the policy world. In fact, my experience is uh, every uh, institution that I visited, whether it's uh, State Department or uh, or uh, policy organizations or a place like NDI is very open to academics. Uh, but the obstacles is actually within the university itself uh, and within the ivory tower, thus the title of this uh, panel. And the idea is that once you ventured out and became that public academic, once you've found the secret holy grail of translating your academic work into a public policy audience, it's very difficult to come back uh, with uh, that experience back into the university. You're not uh, welcomed in open arms to a history department, to an anthropology department, or a religion department. And I think part of what this broader vision that needs to be done is to bridge that uh, gap between public policy and academia by normalizing a lot of the work that we're, we've been doing as fellows uh, to the point where it can be translated into uh, public policy, uh, but it also should be something that's normalized and that universities shouldn't shun, but rather embrace as part of their departments. So thank you again for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Susan Hi, I don't have pretty pictures, so you're going to have to look at me. <laughs> So I'm um, at the State Department, and I need to begin by stating that I'm here speaking on my personal, in my personal capacity. They've trained me well, and nothing that I say is attributable. Um, I've had the great privilege of serving uh, in the Office of International Religious Freedom, uh, which is a really interesting to, place to be at the State Department at this moment in time, and in this kind of time in history, because they're expanding pretty uh, uh, extensively at the moment. Um, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the mandate to set up the office, and um, we're in the Office of Democracy, um, Human Rights, and Labor. So um, it's really a human rights office, and so people in the office are people you'd find, they're kind of like the people you'd find in an NGO working on human rights, and I think of them as the justice warriors. They're incredible. So I have really feel very privileged to be working alongside them. I'm there at a very interesting time. Um, I applied for this fellowships, uh, the Franklin Fellowship and the American Academy of Religion Loose Fellowship uh, two years ago, two years before I started. And uh, by the time I got security clearance, um, two years had gone by, and the political environment was profoundly different than what I had expected to enter. And I actually thought twice, three times, four times about whether I want to do it or not, frankly. And it was actually a, a spiritual odyssey that led me to um, do it in the end. I'm very grateful that I chose as I did, because it's been a, a profoundly um, interesting experience. I, I, I think uh, you heard that I have a background in anthropology. So it's been really interesting to be there as an anthropologist in this time <laughs> at the State Department. And the State Department itself um, is an organization that, when I entered, felt like a traumatized organization, frankly. So I've used not just my skills, uh, my academic skills, but I had to use everything I knew about trauma <laughs> and withstanding trauma to be there, frankly. And it's been very interesting. Uh, 
one dimension of my scholarly expertise that I brought to the office is my understanding of what happens to people in communities following long-standing atrocities and how their the experience of collective trauma, severe collective trauma, distorts religious narratives and in interpretations towards more fundamentalist and absolutist uh, um, interpretations. And what does it take to heal not just individual trauma, but trauma that's been institutionalized? So th th that was kind of the uh, um, field with which I, brought, I came in. Uh, peacemaking is just a first step in that process. But along with my scholarly expertise, I, I, br I brought to the office, which was not my office of choice, by the way. I had wanted to go to a different office, but I'm really grateful that I was planted where I was. It turned out to be, again, divinely orchestrated or whatever we want to call it. It was really amazing that I got placed there. But uh, um, uh, my background is I, I have a really deep appreciation and understanding of the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, one of my teachers was a rabbi named Rabbi Zalman Schechter. We called him Reb Zalman, and he lived up the street in uh, Boulder till he died a few years ago. And he, you know, he spoke about um, this deep radical ecumenism and the idea of not just being tolerant of each other, but really um, entering faiths um, and knowing and to appreciate them from within. So I actually endeavored to do that, and I, I was married um, into the Jewish community, and so I, I adopted Judaism. So I, I was a Jew and practiced certain parts of Judaism. I knew it very well. My mother-in-law um, uh, survived Nazi Germany, and her entire extended family was killed in the Holocaust. So I have a very deep understanding of the Jewish community. Over time, I um, was ordained as a minister of peace in a community called the Beloved Community, and uh, um, set up uh, with the former Jesuit priest um, Padre Lionel uh, in Colombia, schools of forgiveness and reconciliation that spread to 10 countries or more. So I, I worked with people from different traditions. I'm also a Sufi initiate and um, uh, was an advisor to uh, Pirzia in Ayat Khan, who is um, a Sufi teacher, master in uh, who lives now in Richmond, Virginia. So I've engaged the various Abrahamic faith traditions um, with deep respect not as someone from the outside, but from the inside. And you know, as you know, with even your family members, what, what that means is that I see not just what's beautiful, but the not so rosy aspects of these traditions. Um, so I bring that also to my work in this office. But also, I'm Iranian born, and I'm Zoroastrian by uh, descent, which is a non-Abrahamic tradition. And I have, a per I have the perspective of the peoples who've actually been persecuted by folks in the Abrahamic faith. So I have that perspective as well, as well as have having worked very closely with indigenous populations. I had my doctoral work was with native communities and the trauma of native communities and um, what it takes to heal. That's where I, the, the, the um, background in healing collective trauma really comes from the traumas of tribal indigenous peoples. So in other words, I really, um, have a deep understanding of the non, you know, some of the non-Abrahamic traditions as well. And um, I'm also a shamanic practitioner and a <laughs> Mesa back carrier. So I've, I've, I've really looked at these traditions from the inside and know them quite intimately. And um, so I think that um, I'm aware of uh, what often gets lost and rendered invisible. Um, and, you know, and, and until disaster happens, like with the Yazidis, some of these communities are not really a, a paid attention to. And I see that as one of the particular blind spots in the office that I'm currently in. Um, and maybe in the State Department in general, maybe in, the, in a lot of the planet. So uh, um, I think that the study of international 
religious freedom is very Abrahamic faith focused, is from, from my perspective. And I would really like to see it evolve over time and to, to have more of a non-Christian, non-Abrahamic faith uh, perspective, because it looks different from where I see it. And I'd like to bring those who are usually rendered invisible to the table a little bit more broadly. Uh, not after uh, some disaster has happened. Some of these communities, have, you know, like the Zoroastrians have been, uh, you know, they've been annihilated, basically. They're just so, there's 20,000 of us left in Iran. I mean, we've been under, what well, Yazidis have experienced, we've been going through for about 1,000 years. So it's, it's um, you know, we, we, we want to pay attention to these communities beforehand, and they have a particular perspective that's not being seen. So that's been part of what I've done in my, um, my role, even though it's sort of more subtle. I don't say that's what I do, but I bring it in every chance I get, <laughs> the missing perspective. Um, but back to the issue at hand, like what does it take to bring to the table um, our ac academic expertise? And um, I think what we offer is nuance. And I think Asha was talking about this, and it's a double-edged sword, as he mentioned. I was, you know, I was asked it, what it looks like when it's successful was, you know, bringing to the uh, ambassador large um, in my office uh, the realization that not all Iranian Shia um, are for the government right now, and that we can bring. You know, so those sort of nuances, you know, the subtleties, um, bringing those sorts of perspectives to the table. But you know, in a place like the State Department, which might be different, thank you, from other places, it's a uh, fast-moving, um, people need to make quick decisions, and as, as Asha was saying, uh, nuance is often lost. And, um, you know, even though I found people at the State Department to be amongst the brightest uh, and most capable anywhere, it's just that when you're operating at such speeds, you know, you need to simplify. So our academic trainings have to be really watered down and, you know, not watered down, but simplified, simplified, simplified to, to its utmost. And, uh, you know, um, but how, how much nuance can be conveyed in a page? You know, like that's really a challenge. You've got to figure out what is really of essence. And then you've got to find places to bring it in at every chance you get, you know, the other stuff that was missing. Uh, and what was, I wanted to suggest to you guys, because what was really helpful to me is my training at the Kennedy School, which um, was a school of public policy. They taught memo writing, they taught simplification. And, uh, you know, what's the ultimate point? What is it, you know, what does this idea want to contribute to the larger analysis? And so, you know, I wondered about the importance of getting some of that training beforehand. And if you guys could, you know, those of you who are still students, but how do you learn, um, you know, take courses in, you know, cross-register in those sorts of courses, uh, those sorts of schools also at universities where you learn actually how to do that before you, uh, you I think it's really important. Or even journalistic writing would be another thing that would be important. Anyway, this is a conversation to be continued, but uh, thank you for your time, and lovely to be here with you guys. Thanks. So in my haste to turn the conversation over to panelists, I neglected to provide Anne with her full uh, introduction. So I'd like to introduce Anne Wainscott. She is an assistant professor at Miami University of Ohio. Um, she has a PhD in political science from the University of Florida. And in 2017, uh, Cambridge University Press published her book, uh, Bureaucratizing Islam, um, while uh, an AIAR loose fellow in religion and international affairs. She's been in the US Institute for Peace uh, Global Practice and Innovation Unit, uh, working on uh, field research in Iraq, mapping the religious landscape vis-a-vis -vis conflict dynamics. So uh, we look forward to hearing from you, Anne. It's always hard to follow the shaman, you know, <laughs> but I'll see what I can do. Um, I had, as Evan 
described the great good fortune to be placed on the USIP religion team after a series of bureaucratic nightmares, which you don't need to know, but know that that could be a part of a fellowship process should you pursue one. Um, so you might do a top secret security clearance in which you were told this is the worst folder I've ever had to do, the worst file I've ever had to do, and then you might still not land in a place that uses that security clearance, and you might do it all while you're eight and a half or nine months pregnant, but <laughs> that's besides the point. Um, but it might be worth re referencing some of these experiences because you need to think about doing a fellowship like this is deeply disruptive in some ways. You move, your fam you have to replace your family, your spouse needs a job, so these are all considerations that have to be taken account of. And in addition, those considerations you think of in advance will be insufficient. There will be other factors which you don't think about, elections, you know, people shutting down the State Department in various ways, et cetera. So um, I want to talk a little bit about what my work was like at USIP and what I gained as an individual, even in just my own personal development, being in a bureaucratic setting versus being in the academy, because I think um, maybe with a little bit of humility, we might think less about what we're bringing to government and we might think a little bit more about what is to be gained from some really well-built bureaucracies in some ways. Of course, I'm the one with a book called Bureaucratizing Islam, so maybe you shouldn't trust my opinion of bureaucracy. Uh, so I am um, interviewed at USIP and I heard that they were doing religious mappings and I was really engaged by this idea. I had worked on the religious field in the Moroccan context. My first book as was referenced, and Morocco is a monarchy. It's relatively homogenous. It's Sunni. And the next upcoming religious mapping was going to be in Iraq, a republic with a lot of religious diversity with a predominantly Shia population. So for me, part of um, my attraction to the work at USIP and the specific project I was working on was the way in which it would allow me to develop a very like, specialized expertise base that was complementary to but not directly related to my original expertise. I mean, if you think about it, when you're transitioning from first book to second book, um, maybe you've spent 10 years on that project, and it's really uphill battle to think about how do I develop a knowledge base while I'm also teaching full time, whereas when you are dissertating, you just got to sit around in coffee shops and read all the articles you wanted to. And what a fellowship can allow you to do in certain circumstances is really dive into a project and work full time on it. And that was my experience at USIP. I worked on Iraqi politics eight hours a day for a year. I shared an office with a State Department official who was also placed at USIP on a fellowship who was obsessed with Iraqi politics. Like We had to shut our door because the RAs would yell at us for being too loud. Um, and I was in a context with a lot of people following the empirical, the day-to-day. -day. Um, so it was a very different life than the like solitary experience of being in the academy where you're surrounded by people who are engaged by the concepts you are, but not the actual empirics. Um, and so that is... Um, one, it's very intellectually stimulating, but two, it also allows you to advance a lot faster in a knowledge base than you would otherwise. I mean, if you think about it, you're trying to develop expertise in a whole new subject area, working on it full time for one year before you begin the book writing process is a great asset. So those are kind of some of the factors that led me to my interest in the project. Basically, what we were doing is mapping religious actors in conflict zones. I know some of you were at the panel last night where we went into this in great detail. Um, so I was managing a team of local researchers, Iraqi researchers who were already affiliated with USIP through various other previous engagements. I trained them in qualitative semi-structured semi interviewing techniques, and uh, then they went into the field. They did all of the research, and then we did a debrief um, where I um, just hosted a series of discussions to try and get 
their analysis of the research they had done. And then we um, you know, wrote the report, and there was a lot of interest in what we had done in the South, and we were able to get additional funding. So now phase two of that project is actually still in the field right now. Um, some of the advantages of being in a bureaucracy, my budget like combined, when you look at everything, I mean, well over $200,000 in research funds, which uh, is not common for political scientists, particularly at my kind of early stage in the career, in my career. Um, also having access to a network, like USIP is deeply integrated in the Iraq politics kind of bureaucracy that exists in DC. So getting to have coffee with the ambassador, getting to meet with other VIPs and really get access to people I wouldn't have access to as an academic who's new to a subject area was a real asset. Um, just kind of returning to this idea of personal development, something you might want to think about if you want to do a fellowship. Uh, I got news for you. Like academics are not good at teams. Teamwork, not your specialty. Um, it took me like maybe eight or nine months to realize this. Like I had this moment where like someone on my, the team I was serving with like did one of my tasks and like I realized that I had been like thinking the whole year that I had to do everything all the time and I had been like underutilizing other people's functions because it's just so counter to our experience to have anyone help. I mean, I just moved institutions to a new university and when the secretary said she would do all my reimbursements for travel, I was like weeping. You know, academics are not used to this kind of like administrative support and we're getting less used to it over time with budget cuts to our institutions. So I do think there's an opportunity for a whole new skill set to be developed in government where you're engaging with other people, you're trying not to step on their toes, you're learning bureaucratic processes. Um, I found how like little I knew about bureaucracy through the process, so there was an intellectual component to that. Um, I think I'm probably at time, right? Got I got a minute, all right. Um, one thing that I really learned but could never implement, you know how you learn something but you like, don't know it well enough to actually do, but in the future I'm confident I will learn to do this. Like the bureaucratic process, you have to get the process going before you're ready. And it's very awkward for an academic to adjust to because the bureaucratic process itself is going to refine the product. And so what I find academics do wrong in government type positions and what I consistently did wrong was I was always kind of starting the process too late because I was like trying to perfect the product on my own but I wasn't taking into account the interests of other teams who are related to my project and I, who I could never have guessed in advance anyways. So it's better to kind of like do a quick first draft and get it out there and get the comments started and the bureaucratic process itself will turn out the final product that's acceptable to the team. So that's one kind of like practical tip I left with that I now use at the university to like uh, to be a more effective bureaucrat. So I'm going to stop there and um, look forward to your questions. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I was asked, I'm a wonderful job panelist, I'm, that was really wonderful presentations, and thank you, Evan, for asking me to um, step in on at short notice, which I'm happy to do. I'm really excited about being here as a respondent. Um, 
what I ultimately, I uh, am a member of the Applied Religious Studies Committee, newly appointed here at uh, AAR, and our mandate is to help graduate students specifically deal with careers outside of um, academia or help them and also help them support um, any of their non-academic interests. And as we know, tenure track jobs are becoming rare and uh, adjunct positions are also requiring in, uh, more demand. And what I would like to do is talk about the, uh, build upon the uh, panelists in terms of the uh, opportunities and obstacles that scholars of religions face outside of academia. And that's ultimately what we were asked to do here tonight. So, um, by the way, there's a clipboard going around for those of you who are interested in signing up. Does anybody know where that clipboard went? Okay, great. Did everybody get a chance to sign that? Okay, if not, maybe we can take it around one more time. Thank you very much for that, by the way. That's helping. And also, um, on that note, um, I am conducting a straw poll here to later um, hopefully cons construct a more formal survey of what interests, what are your needs, what are your, what do you, what would you like basically the uh, Applied Religious Studies Committee panel to address um, for careers outside of academia. So if anybody has any ideas, feel free to talk to me after this panel. Okay, and you have to excuse my voice, I've been talking a lot the last two days as well as the weather isn't really doing me any favors here. <laughs> okay, uh, ultimately what we've, what scholars of religion can bring and do bring to the public policy arena as well as civil society as a whole is nuance. And I think that's a really important point that the panelists have mentioned in various capacities uh, in their roles, uh, very much so, especially within the, within the uh, vast media or the, the fast-paced media environment as we know, especially given the rise of fake news, nuance is going out the window. And especially, I think, the capacity for understanding in-depth tools. Uh, Asher made a really great point in terms of um, essentially bringing complicated understanding of what policymakers very much want to view as binary, uh, binary conflicts. Particularly, of course, with your work in Yemen, tribal and the, understanding the tribal and political dynamics that underline violence is incredibly important today, given the prevalence of geopolitical or the geopolitical landscape and the prevalence of violence even within what my own specialty is, is militant white nationalism in the United States. There's very much a binary uh, dynamic that policymakers want to push, and I'm sure maybe we can talk about that later on in the Q&A. And then r scholars of religion, especially those with uh, you know, understanding expertise in research, et cetera, bring that, uh, bring that skill set that policymakers don't necessarily hone. So I think very much um, when we talk about the ivory tower, for example, that's seen as a lofty perch in the sky somewhere, and we kind of look, or not we, but certain academics may look down upon um, the policymakers and non-academic settings. And I think that's really um, unfortunate given the level of depth and insight um, that many of us can bring to the table. Also, Susan was mentioning, uh, again, the rabbi that you worked with, the deep ecumenism, right? And um, I find that really important, and I hope we can talk about that later as well in the uh, uh, Q&A, about the non-Abrahamic faith approach to conflict and violence and resolution. I think that's incredibly important. And Anne-Marie also mentioned religious mapping, and I think that's really, um, particularly insightful given 
the maneuvering that many students, and I don't know if there are any graduate students in the uh, audience today, tonight, but uh, how scholars and young scholars, or junior scholars rather, need to focus on maybe p developing a different type of skill set that graduate students, or graduate students, yes, naturally don't necessarily get to develop whilst they are dissertating. Right. So hopefully we can bring that up to talk about. Okay, and uh, my own work, I've dealt with uh, a little while ago with the U.S. Department of State and looking at militant white nationalism. And of course, given today's political climate within the United States, um, talking about identity politics can be quite contentious, but I would like to emphasize for anybody who's interested um, in non-academic careers that really the ivory tower needs to be seen as not a remote, idealized uh, perch, as I said before, but one of many buildings uh, in the landscape of academia. And I think there's a lot to contribute, um, and religious scholars in particular have, um, have a particular type of skill set that is incredibly valuable today, uh, that it should not be just the ivory tower, but really keep in mind the broader scope of government buildings, nonprofits, think tanks, and civil society. Um, and I'd like to hear more. Hopefully we can address some of these issues in the Q&A. In particular, uh, I think more about the obstacles because it's really these real life challenges that each of us face in terms of how to navigate um, our very particular specialties and our particular areas of interest and then how to go about in the real world and navigate that and apply that to our different areas of focus in whatever uh, non-academic we find ourselves, non-academic field we find ourselves in. So thank you very much. I look forward to hearing from you. So before we open it up, I think I'd might like to invite the panelists to, to continue to build our conversation a little bit. So Asher, can I ask you to turn on the passing mic that's there in front of you? Uh, and I'll pose a question, uh, then maybe you can each discuss it in turn. Uh, so a, a couple of questions about this. So this is, uh, we're showcasing the work that you've done as AAR Loose Fellows in Religion and International Affairs. Um, I'd be happy to, to help if you want to pass it on down. Uh, the, this is a program that is a standing um, funded uh, par part of the AAR's work. Uh, it's an opportunity that sort of exists. You apply to it a little bit like you apply to an academic job, right? You see it in a call for papers. Um, so it's a little different than a lot of the other conversations we might have around uh, careers uh, that bring on, that build on religion expertise outside of academic uh, environments. So maybe you could, you could comment briefly both on what you think uh, that fellowship's experience tells you about doing policy relevant work generally, but then also what advice you might have uh, for folks who aren't necessarily headed towards a particular fellowship, but are more broadly interested in developing maybe even entrepreneurially uh, their relationship with the policy apparatus and, and thinking about that as a more general career space separate from this particular fellowship program. So do we still need to get the mic on? Go ahead. Anybody who would like to start, go ahead. Uh, so uh, just uh, briefly touching uh, what, what Evan uh, mentioned is the best advice that 
my dissertation advisor gave me is he said, uh, don't write a dissertation for me, but write it for the publisher or write it for the public audience. And he says, I'll pass you no matter what because um, that's what dissertation advisors do at some point, especially <laughs> older ones. Uh, and he said, uh, write that for, uh, for the public audience. And I, I think that's uh, what allowed me to publish my book within two years, uh, two and a half years of uh, completing my uh, PhD. So rather than just sit on this dissertation, it was out there. And once it's out there, then it's very easy, it's easier to just uh, translate a lot of that work that you've done into uh, a more popular audience. So I think that uh, you don't necessarily have to go full-fledged into a fellowship, but understanding that your work is of interest and of use to others other than just your dissertation advisors, I think is the biggest lesson that I learned and one that uh, could really be of use to graduate students as they're finishing or training uh, to realize that. Thanks. One thing I think it's worth keeping in mind that academics are frequently unaware of is that there's tremendous respect for the PhD credential in Washington in general and in government in particular. There are a lot of people with PhDs, but it's not that, I mean, at the university, everyone who works there has a PhD. And so you get very used to assuming a certain level of training among your colleagues. And in government, there is respect for people who, have, masters are very common, but the PhD credential has value. Um, and it's respected. So uh, that's one piece that maybe part of the process of getting a job is um, assessing yourself in a more accurate way than you might be if you're constantly surrounded by other professors. Um, another thing that I found that surprised me actually in the policy space was the respect for academic methods, concepts, knowledge of the literature, um, but, but those things constrained by the ability to like speak about them with layman's terms. And I think this gets back to the question about graduate training in a really fundamental way. As faculty, we're deeply implicated in like not preparing our students to do anything. Um, you can't even use the way in which we talk in a lot of graduate seminars at a cocktail party. And like, I'd like to be able to have a conversation about religion at a cocktail party. I'd like someone to invite me to a cocktail party, but that's a whole other whole problem in the academy, you know, everyone's so busy. But um, I think that we can move in our assignments that we ask of our students toward more policy-relevant writing styles, and then the process of grading those assignments can be very formative to our own understanding of that. I mean, there's nothing like grading like 50 op-eds to realize what your values are related to op-eds. Um, or 70, as my next class will be. Um, so I guess I would say that um, there is a graduate training element to this. There's also a teaching element. Once you're in a role, you can use your role as a teacher to develop the skill set that you yourself want. Um, and I've seen some really interesting things coming out of religion classrooms in terms of like one-page memos like say you're advising uh, the Secretary of State on the religious dimensions of X conflict and you only get a page, what would you write? You know, these type of assignments can be really helpful, especially as our classroom sizes get larger because we have to start thinking about how can we use assignments that are quicker for us to grade but that are very time intensive for the person to accomplish a good job. And I think grant proposals and op-eds allow that. Um, I'll pass on the mic, but I think we come back to this topic, definitely. I was um, 
thinking that part of my challenge was this, does this work actually? Do I yeah. this? Oh. One of the challenges I had was that um, I was bucking the system a little bit just because of the topic matters that I covered. So I wasn't going in, um, not, I mean, maybe it's my nature to do so, but anyway, but bringing up people who are not in the tape on the table or saying, oh, you know, I never said this actually, but our office is dominated by the Abrahamic faith perspective. Um, there's nobody else here in, in this office but, but me who has a perspective other than the Abrahamic faiths was I, I didn't bring that up overtly, but you know, obviously I represented something that was a little challenging for people, could have been challenging for people. Also the topic area that I brought in to some extent was collective trauma, which most people don't want to talk about anyway. I mean, trauma is not something that people want to talk about. I found that in academia, it was a challenge to even bring it up in academia, let alone um, at the State Department. Um, I mean, people were, I think, very respectful, and they did hear. I had to find a way to speak to their listening, basically, and that's always the challenge. And how do you, how do you, and I learned enormously from, from them. So there's deep respect, but if you're coming in with something that's actually challenging, you've got to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, you're not going to bring your brilliant idea and you're going to shift people's thinking by the analysis. You're going to have to really work with people over time with their challenges. This is not a, even a year. Um, it's, a, it's years. And, that people themselves are under, you know, they're under a lot of pressure politically. Like in my office, there are a lot of political pressures from different groups. We had the, you know, we had the evangelical Christians practically in our office. We had the, you know, we, so my perspective was I had to really figure out politically how to bring this up and know that I was dealing with, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not um, at the level of fact, it's at the level of human beings and how you orchestrate change processes over time. So it's, it's, a, it's a really complicated, um, it's, it's more than writing a memo. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's, it's dealing with people and uh, you know, having relationships, which is really important, getting them to trust you over time, trusting them. You know, it's really, a lot of stuff happens, you know, at the, as they say, by the water cooler. I, I got very, um, my colleague uh, and I bonded finally when we went to the Balkans and did some um, work in the Balkans together. And it was there that we kind of, day in and day out, dealt with difficult things and, you know, talked over wine, argued, and, you know, that's when we finally, he finally started to respect me. I think it was the only time when he finally saw who I was and was able to hear what I had to say, also in the context of the Balkans where there was collective trauma. So, anyway, in other words, um, our, you know, whatever brilliant idea we think we have, we have to really know that we, ha we have to figure out a way to uh, bring it to people who, you know, that may have, there's some resistances. Um, both on a uh, personal level, but also politically. There are all sorts of factions, especially the State Department, that they're dealing with and challenges that they have. So, you know, our brilliant idea may fall flat <laughs> in that context. So, anyway. Great, thanks. I want to ask one uh, more detailed version of the same question again, and then we'll go ahead and open it up. Uh, I'm, I know a little bit more about your work, Anne, and, and your background, Asher, but I think all of you already had uh, interaction with what we could call the policy sphere before the fellowship experience. And here, rather than thinking in general terms about the ways that that sphere is different than the academic sphere, I'd like you to actually comment in really material terms. How did you have those come to have those relationships? What were your earliest ventures into that space? How did you, how did you build that network? Uh, assuming you probably didn't always have one, right? It was a little easier for me because I also was in a school, uh, Kennedy School of Government, um, so I had a lot of connections in that arena to the policy world. So in some ways, it's not quite fair. I mean, I was, I, we all get our PhDs at Harvard through the arts and sciences, 
but my PhD was, uh, you know, my advisors, some of my advisors were from the Kennedy School. So in any case, I had policy people there from the beginning. Um, but then I worked uh, for about a decade in the leadership training world. So I was a uh, consultant in the leadership training world. So I worked with prime ministers. I worked with, you know, I, I was in the political realm working with people on many levels. So I was already working with government people um, as in that role. So I wasn't in just an academic in that role. So that's how I did it. At the risk of stating the obvious, you need to physically locate yourself in DC if you want if you want to shape the policy process at some point, like it's okay, to, it's okay to leave, but at some point you're gonna to have to be physically located there to build the relationships that'll form the foundation of outreach that you do. I think there are things you can do in advance of that. Um, I think in particular, like strategically placed blog posts will connect your ideas to way more people than your publications. And I think starting to think of your publications in a sequential way where the article coming out of the journal is only the first step in dissemination is an effective choice. Basically, if you want to engage the Twitter, the, the policy space and you're not on Twitter, like you're, you're not actively engaged in like ongoing conversations that are happening in real time about news. It's deeply time consuming, so I like tend to constrain it when I do it. So like, for example, I was on leave in 2015 to write my book and I wrote from DC in a coffee shop. So during the hours when I was working on my book, I don't open email, I don't open social media, I don't talk to the like weird guy trying to flirt with me in the stool next, I mean it's like only my book. But then at some point you have to, you have to turn on Twitter, social media, you, you see what I'm saying? And there needs to be a strategic policy. So I think the most effective people on social media, and I'm focused on Twitter because that's where the foreign policy conversation happens, some of the other conversations happen on other platforms, it's up to you. Um, but in the foreign policy space, Twitter's the professional discussion space and the people there who have the most respect in my opinion have a very narrow range of topics in which they comment like people who think they have the right to comment on everything domestic and international politics like they end up making fools of themselves like pick a topic that you're going to follow write on it regularly post and then like create synergy you post blog posts to your twitter feed to promote Engage with people on Twitter who are talking about the same ideas as you are and be like mildly respectful about it. Like give credit where credit is due. People love that. Retweet things that are well written and say this is well written. You know, like give throw people a bone a little bit and they you'll be you can build a community that way. Um, but at the end of the day, at some point you need to locate yourself in DC. Um, and I think like a stepping stone in that direction, say you're in like the, corn, the cornfields of Iowa or something and you're like, well, I don't even know what the first step is. If that were me and I had any research funds whatsoever, I would like just watch, I would just sign up for the think tank um, newsletter and I would just watch for an event that aligns within the next six months as close as possible with my research. Now a lot of times these places are so disorganized, it's like three days in advance they're going to tell you about it. Well, you need to you need to like react. When, when that event happens, sometimes they're pulling together major players because they just happen to be in town at the same time, and you can get access directly to a conversation. Um, I've got a lot more thoughts about this in terms of material strategy, but I'll stop there because I keep talking too long on my panels. <laughs> so uh, I didn't use Twitter or uh, any of those others. Uh, just you know, know when you travel to the Middle East, all of your, or any, regions of conflict, all information that you post on Facebook or Twitter or whatever is, is open intelligence to every intelligence network across the world. So just if you're posting something, make sure it's something you feel comfortable with 
Hezbollah scrutinizing before you enter uh, Beirut International Airport. Uh, but that's that's a uh, yeah. Uh, that's my own uh, bit. It just uh, be careful what you do post in that. Uh, but what I would say is, uh, be brave uh, and don't be afraid to take chances. And as a second year graduate student, uh, knowing very little, uh, I was uh, offered an opportunity to go and be a keynote speaker for the Overseas Development Institute, ODI in London. They were running a humanitarian conference in Amman, Jordan. Uh, and it was on uh, humanitarian policy in, across the Middle East, and they needed somebody to do Yemen. Now, I didn't really know much about it, uh, and it was in front of uh, a very large audience, and I said, you know what, let me fudge it and, and fake it until I can you know, finally figure out my way around it. So I, I did the preparation ahead of time and, uh, and was able to uh, give off uh, not just a presentation, but uh, then a presentation that led to many other similar international conferences. Uh, so you know, even though at the time I said, well, who am I? And I think they were actually shocked when I showed up. And they're like, oh, we thought you were like a professor or something. Uh, well, it's too late, they already paid for my plane ticket. And, and, uh, but, but I think the point is, don't, don't be afraid to take those chances and to put yourself out there. Uh, because you'll never be able to move to the next stage and succeed unless you're, you're willing to, to be brave and to put your words out there the way, uh, the way you envision them. And it's the song that I play for my undergrads all the time, that you, know, you have to be brave or has the, I'm not going to start singing. Usually I play it for them. <laughs> And I let the words flow out, you know, whatever. Um, so my undergrads love it, but the whole point is that uh, if you have an idea, right, even if it's uh, still in its infancy, don't be afraid to put it out there. And critique is, is the absolute best thing that you can get. And uh, that's, uh, in, in essence, what, uh, what you should be doing. Don't be afraid to have someone rip apart your work. Uh, because that's the only way that you can grow and rip apart your presentation. And that's, that's something about it. Maybe um, uh, it, it could be very difficult to, to manage, but having that attention and that critique can really help you grow uh, in any sphere that you envision. Just a quick follow-up on that. I've been like studying the concept of expertise because I'm a political scientist and I'm into weird things like that. But one of the things that I've just concluded about the contemporary form of expertise, especially as it relates to the policy process, is you develop expertise through the performance of expertise. And in fact, you don't wait until you're an expert. Because if you wait until you're an expert, you never get invited to the tables where you develop the expertise. It sounds really counterintuitive, but um, I've just watched this with multiple individuals where I'm like, you have no right to be talking about this. And like through the multiple engagements of claiming expertise on a topic, they become that expert because you need, like, you need the combination of the pressure of the event, the deadline, the questions asked by the individuals at the event, and your own like, academic intellectual training. You need there to be like this interaction effect. It's almost like my comment earlier about the bureaucratic process. Like you start it earlier than you than you, you, than you would in the academy. So you start presenting publicly in DC earlier than you would at a place like AAR where there'll be other experts who actually know what you're talking about because in fact you probably do know more than everyone else in the room on a certain aspect of a problem. And you just have to find the way to learn how to communicate that more effectively. And the only way you're gonna really learn is to be in that milieu, to watch other people who do it well, and to practice over and over again. So um, I would just say like, don't don't be shy. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, I guess I'm just trying to follow off the be brave comment. Sure, sure. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, can I get a show of hands? Who's a grad student here? Okay. Who is a non-academic here? All right. Um, I would love to hear what your interests are, perhaps maybe during the Q&A. But what I wanted to bring up, and the reason I brought out my phone, um, somewhat, somewhat discourteously probably, is that um, there will be a panel uh, tomorrow at 11:45 called "A Public Religion Scholar in a Social Media Age." And there are, a, and social media, as we know, is a full-time job, if not two full-time jobs, in order to actually build that rapport and then actually and maintain that community. Uh, and for those. For me in particular, I'm not on social media because of the nature of my work where I deal with militancy and I've interviewed mil militant activists in the United States uh, and that um, uh, I got so much pushback that I've just decided not to, and especially particularly with uh, militant white nationalists. Uh, they're very much um, mistrustful of even though they use social media as a tool, there are many more white nationalists who are off the grid and very suspicious of those who, who use social media um, and have a public presence. And also, I don't want to get doxxed and harassed, et cetera, until I have maybe a somewhat of a bigger platform when manuscript comes out or something. And on, on that note as well, um, maybe this is somewhat tangential to many of your interests here, but uh, many times faculty may not necessarily have the time or energy or just virtue of age or whatever it is to um, be as mentorful as they could be or as helpful in many regards as maybe perhaps coming up with those constructive assignments and, and being open to that. So what I wanted to encourage anybody, uh, again, this is maybe tangential for this particular audience, but to um, go outside of your university, search out other faculty members, and network in that way. So even if you want a career outside of the academy, also I want to give you a sense of empowerment um, to engage with scholars outside of your university because I think that's also particularly important. So I'd love to open it up to the audience for, for questions. Um, if you would like, I can bring the microphone. Please. Um, so if you're PhD with a theory focus, did you find a difficulty, because I moved from kind of an academic setting into an academic and some public setting, um, and I found a challenge communicating theory uh, on a level that's understandable in a public setting. Did you find that challenging? Because a, a lot of the stuff we do as academics is very theory focused, right? Um, does that make sense, that question? Yeah. Are you addressing anyone in particular? No. So uh, I'll give you two responses to that, two brief responses. One, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Foucault because that was a lead into my first experience with theory in graduate school. Uh, there were 29 entering students in the history department at uh, the Harvard PhD program and everyone went around talking about uh, where they went to school and everyone had gone to uh, the top pedigree of, uh, of schools where you would assume Yale, Princeton, Oxford, uh, Cambridge, Stanford, uh, and then they got to me, and I went to the City University of New York as an undergrad, uh, and I was labeled the public university uh, doctoral student. Well, you know, I thumbed my nose at them and said, well, uh, you know, I didn't pay 
a quarter of a million dollars to my education, but we're in the exact same spot, so, right? Uh, and the reason Foucault came in is because in this ensuing class, a lot of uh, students, uh, graduate students, would uh, adjectivize authors' names and say, well, you know, that's so Foucauldian. And I finally had the guts and said, who's Foucault? I went to a little city university where I didn't know how to adjectivize names of famous authors. Uh, and uh, that, was, that was the laughing stock of, of the class. And then I went home and uh, read through Michel Foucault's works and realized that they had no idea what they were actually saying and just labeled things Foucauldian. Right? So theories sound really nice when you adjectivize names. Uh, but when it actually comes down to it, uh, what uh, you know, how are we supposed to understand Michel Foucault's uh, definition of power? Does, does it really have any practical uh, applications to uh, taking your academia outside of, uh, of it? And then the second anecdote, which explains from the other end, of then uh, trying to retranslate work that you do outside of the university, bringing you back into the university, uh, came up uh, recently, in fact, last week, um, with an unnamed university uh, interviewing me for a professorship and asking uh, the question, okay, what conflicts have you resolved recently? Uh, you know, we were talking about Yemen and, and track, I've never been asked that question, uh, but then talking about track two diplomacy in Yemen. Uh, and then invariably the, th the question came up, well, what theories of conflict resolution did you try to apply in this particular instance? Now, I'm not trained in conflict resolution, uh, so I said, well, you know, we wanted to apply all the theories that we learned in graduate school which was a veiled way of saying I had no idea, right? But we threw it all out the door when we walked in and chewed got instead, right? Which is a Yemeni um, uh, uh, addictive narco narcotic drug, but that's the way everything happens. So, you know, essentially, uh, how applicable are theories? Probably not, uh, but you need to learn how to adjectivize names in order to translate to, to a pretentious academic audience. I have a slightly different perspective. My experience is that policymakers are extremely interested in the results of scholarship, and I would never frame it as theory, but if you say, in, in general, the consensus among scholars is, and it's something that's directly related to something they're thinking about, they're very interested. One, one, one of my uh, kind of beefs with USIP, I'll, I'll slam USIP here, even in the context of <laughs> Susie Hayward, um, because a lot, a lot of times when they do a lit review, they'll assign it to an undergraduate research assistant who doesn't evaluate the quality of the scholarship. They only evaluate what's been written on, like in terms of like what was the topic. And so that's the one area that like trained scholars can come in and say like, yeah, someone's written a paper on this topic, but the results are totally unreliable because this method is inappropriate for that asking of this question. And we have these three other studies that aren't directly on this topic, but they use much more sound methodology and they ask a lot, they create a lot of questions about that path. And I found that people were really hungry for this. And I think if academics were putting out very brief papers that were like, current state of the literature on this topic, current state of the literature on this topic, I think you'd be surprised how much interest there is. Um, yeah, the publishing outlet is the, is the challenging part, and I'm not sure, but like people are using Google in a serious way. So like sometimes, sometimes the venue isn't as important as just getting it out there somewhere. I do think just having a blog, your, personally, can be better than not putting your ideas out there at all. 
say one quick thing. I, I actually, um, I think our panelists this evening have given us a, a bunch of insightful ideas about how academic work translates and, and to, to think about that as a practice, right? There are particular modes of communication in, in terms of the format of documents and there are particular modes in commu of communication in terms of ad adjectivizing names and sort of using an academic discursive style to communicate information. But I think it's probably true for most people with uh, a, a research and, and theory background that the output of your work has, can, can be boiled down into a single sentence, right? That, 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 we, that we don't like to do that because we want to insist on the nuance, but uh, if pressed, we could probably say in a single sentence, no, here's, this work is important because, and like get to the point. And that practice uh, is, I think, essential for, for bringing uh, academic knowledge expertise uh, to other kinds of, of, uh, of spheres. Uh, I have this like fantasy where like scholars do like like half day workshops for policymakers on like current states of the field. I don't know where this would happen, but people are interested. And webinars are better attended than, than you would think. I found myself, even, even I attended webinars while in DC. Um, I'm located uh, at Georgetown University and at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. So fortunately enough, I think we don't have the institutional problem of people not, or the university not wanting people out there. And I would say it's very much part of the mission of our center. Um, but now in this conversation, three things have come up. What you just said, um, and Evan, what you just said. So I work, I, I would say my problem and I'm a communications manager, so I'm trying to help our scholars translate their work to the general audience. Often, the scholars are the problem, right? They cannot narrow down, <laughs> right? Everything has to be in there, and everything is important, and this is important to everybody on the face of the planet. Well, no, it's not. You need an audience. So how do I convince people that you need to write for specific audiences? That's kind of to your point. Um, to your point earlier, um, how, do, how do I actually learn how to write these things, right? I mean, you went into this policy world, you didn't know, they didn't want a 50-page paper. I mean, is it as easy as just looking at good examples and what would those good examples be and then kind of learning from those? And then to your point, we also put on a lot of events. You know, in your experience in the policy world, what are events that people want to go to? Um, you know, how can we structure those in a better way at an academic center to attract policy, the policy community? Um, good events. We had some really successful events at USIP where there was like an active component. It's not just hearing from scholars, but also allowing people to process their experiences. And I don't remember how on or off the record those were, so I'm like struggling about giving an example. But if you can think of a topic that would be a hot topic to a policymaker, and having uh, and making it clear in the ad for the event that they'll be not only like hearing from uh, 
expert or a scholar on the topic, but they'll also have a chance to like, like I think we use language like workshops or, um, Susie can help me, round tables, or like we tried to, we tried to create spaces where people could process like um, subjects that, I mean, you have to think like, in a sense, you have to see yourself as having the comp comparative advantage. Like you can convene people who might not be able to sit at the same table, actually at government, and facilitate a conversation with them. And those people want to have those conversations, and they, they, they just want you to make sure that your, your ad needs to communicate to them, these are the people we're gonna make sure you get to have access to. So I think it's a little bit about thinking about like, not like what, what is the weakness of being outside of government, but like what is the advantage of not being limited by the constraints um, and having some sort of active component. And I actually find that sometimes the longer events are better. So I think like the DC think tank space is like, oh, we'll do a 45 minute event here or an hour and a half event here. I think sometimes the three hour event, because the people who actually commit to it, they just block off their calendars. You have time for a coffee break. You know, people come early, they talk beforehand. I think maybe doing fewer but longer and more substantive events um, has more p payoff. I know that we did Facebook Lives, uh, the, the Democracy uh, Human Rights DRL, and uh, I did about four of them for them. They asked me to do it, and those were amazing, actually, and reached you know many thousands of people. So I don't know if that's something you guys do, you know, Facebook Live. I mean, then you got to create an audience for that. I mean, they already had an audience that to which I spoke. Right, right. <clears throat> anyway, those were those those sorts of things were also really interesting, and they weren't for the they weren't for Washington necessarily. They were for Pakistan and you know all sorts of places. So it was really interesting to do those. Did you? Um, um, yeah, I was going to say something else, but I forgot, and I'm sure I'll remember. Uh, audiences. What was the what was the question? You can come back. Yeah. You had a question also on how to teach the students the policy, basically. Well, how to teach myself? How do you? Okay. How do you know from not having any idea to do it? How to do it? Mm -hmm. doing it. Mm -hmm. Is your audience? I mean, are you trying to also integrate undergraduate students or graduate students into this type of work, into understanding or being able to simplify and address a wider audience than academics? No, the center. Yeah. The center, sure, yeah. but I, I mean, the center also produces quite a bit of research. And I want to right. how do I take that policy-relevant research, but that's like an 80-page report, mm -hmm. and actually turn it into something that a policymaker will read. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Uh, so take, take the, the Boston DCA shuttle from JetBlue, and, and you'll find all the people you need to <laughs> help you. Uh, and and that's that's really where I met some of the more influential men mentors that I had is, is sitting on that uh, DCA shuttle where you start to recognize people and some of the people were uh, studio uh, producers uh, for media bits who uh, really took a shine to, to me and, and sat down and said let's teach you how to translate your work into sound bites that can appear on the nightly news uh, and then uh, that's where I met an uh, editor-in-chief in foreign affairs uh, who sat down and said, you've got great ideas, let me teach you how to make them palatable to other people. So part of that is maybe to bring these individuals in for those who are not taking the DCA Boston shuttle and actually bring them in for a panel for your students or your faculty or to the center 
uh, and have an editor from Foreign Affairs Magazine of Foreign Policy, some of these uh, media folks come in. These are the do's and don'ts of speaking in public and, uh, and translating your work, and it's immensely helpful. One of the most well-known forms of translation in the academic world is the so-called elevator pitch, right? We, we know how to do it, but the problem is that when we, we, we do that for a very specific purpose, which has to do with um, the, the honor system that exists within a very narrow, gilded uh, and professional environment, right? So the same kind of work is stuff we can all do. I mean, we also, I, I mean, I would imagine most of us have um, the things we say when we're on airplanes to people about what we do. We have the things that we say to like distant relatives about what we do. Like we all know how to translate our interests and ideas into other kinds of vernaculars. The problem is we just don't practice those vernaculars in this particular context, right? Like the, the kinds of informational needs of, of policymakers and, and people who are sort of working in, in the public sphere, NGOs and, and the like. And I think it's actually not that hard, we just don't practice it, because there isn't enough demand for it. So I, I think one of my hopes for the panel that I, that I see being realized in our conversation today is that um, the, those are cultural problems that have to do with the, the, the ivory tower, right? And, and moving beyond that, I think a lot of what we're trying to do is move some cultural norms about developing those practices, right? Like let's. Let's form communities where together we, we kick around those ideas. Let's, let's make sure that when we come to the AAR, there's places uh, for those of us who care about this stuff to convene in groups and like practice it out loud. Just to tie that up, I guess, from my own perspective, and a lot of that is basically taking away the stigma of a structural stigma uh, that's attached to not having a tenure track job or not adjuncting even or not choose. It's not necessarily, there is always a choice in life, but really sometimes it's between paying the rent and then working three adjunct jobs and uh, going, okay, well maybe I don't really necessarily want to do this because I can't wait two more years for that position to open up in my field if it does, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and also maybe because my particular interests have developed and changed and I want to go into non-academic, or s not pseudo-academic, but semi-academic, where maybe it's working at a center, and yes, I have a PhD, and I can bring my particular expertise, but I think that us being here this evening uh, can, uh, hopefully we're making some strides towards, towards that, towards stripping away that stigma, which I think is incredibly important, and very much uh, a, f a facet of uh, graduate student life in particular. Please, in the back.
apologies for, for wielding moderator privilege to jump in at the Q&A phase. Um, one thing I would, I would want to see in a project like that is to think both, um, maybe we call upstream and downstream from the question. Um, there are a whole bunch of pretty well-known models and workshops around media training, both on the social media side and on the like, TV and radio readiness side. I think our conversation uh, today is, is sort of focused on, on this issue of translating uh, work into forms that are intelligible to policy audiences. And I think those are, the, I, I know there's folks out doing that. There's, for instance, there's this organization, Bridging the Gap, uh, which is in the political science world, but you, you can imagine it in other <coughs> fields as well. Um, uh, but then there's also the upstream problem, which is that, uh, you know, a lot of the conversation we're having here is sort of about an either or between uh, academic career pathways or non-academic career pathways. Uh, and that, that binary exists because the kinds of work that it are considered not academic are not particularly rewarded in the academic sphere. And the academic sphere um, is walled off in all sorts of ways, right? So part of this has to do with um, trying to convince deans and uh, school directors that these kinds of contributions for early career scholars or for postdocs are valuable uh, and should be rewarded. Uh, and that uh, students uh, or uh, experts in religion who wish to put that, that knowledge to work outside the academy uh, are still welcome back in it in, in various ways, right? And I think that upstream part of it uh, is probably the bigger lift, but it's, it's, got, it's gotta be something that, it's gotta be something Toby would wanna pay for. <laughs> Just adding to what you said, I know that, uh, for example, the, uh, my alma mater, like the Kennedy School, had a hard time at Harvard with the, uh, the econ economics department. So even though we were filled with economists, they still, there was, a, there was a stigma attached to the fact that they were public policy. They actually cared about being useful to the world, so in that way. Um, and there was stigma. That had to be worked out over decades. I don't actually know what it's like now. So, uh, but they're, they're a place where people who work in the government come back, can come back to. So I don't know what LSE will do. Um, but I, and also, I think uh, besides the, you know, the information about how do you, um, you know, shorten your papers and you know, all that sort of, and, or, or be able to speak in front of media, the other piece of it is the, you know, what we call leadership training, a particular form of leadership, which was really not about being an authority figure. We distinguished leadership from authority. So it wasn't about teaching people how to be in positions of authority, but how to, how to mobilize people for action and, uh, you know, understand factions and different factions in society and how you, um, you know, so, that, so even though it's a school of economics, if you want them to be working in government and with government, you've got to understand those sorts of things as well. At my institution, we have various programs for young career faculty that either support teaching or support research. They don't do these programs for service. They just know you'll figure it out. But I wonder if, if the model that's being used in the teaching and the um, research development plans could be useful as a model. So how they work at my institution is um, basically in advance you say, okay, this session is going to meet like every two weeks on Tuesday at 4 p.m and the other option is available on Wednesday at this time. So you, you kind of like create a stru structure, a time, say we're gonna expect you to attend every session, but if you do, you will get this amount of research funds at the end. Because really the problem for young career academics is that the incentive structure is not in favor of them 
participating in the public policy process with the exception of it can help with your citation counts. And so if you're in a, if you're in a department where they don't care how many people cite your work toward tenure, then you have literally no incentives whatsoever to pursue research that could put you in a position where you say something controversial and could jeopardize your career. So I think one, there has to be like a very strong, like one of the sessions would have to be a very strong statement from dean level or above that like we're behind you. The university lawyer would have to be there. Counsel would have to be there. These are the these are the circumstances under which we would let you, we would let you go, and these are the circumstances under which you'd be defended. Because right now, um, university counsel tends to be not clear enough with academics about the ways in which they'll be supported, and then academics get into legal trouble, and they don't know to the the degree to which the university is going to support academic freedom. So I think one of the sessions would have to like lay LSC's position on that issue. I think one of the sessions could be a five-year development plan that touches on how are you intentionally developing teaching and research plans, but how can you maximize what you're doing as a teacher and a re as a researcher for the public policy process. I think one session could be on who's your audience, right? Like you two need to get together, right? Because if um, if you're, you're dealing with a bunch of academics who can't name an audience and you're trying to develop career plans for academics to be more engaged, like I think that there's um, a point there. Well, uh, I'd be interested what the other panelists would think. If you were doing like a once a month workshop as an early career faculty member to, de to develop this skill set, what are some of the things you'd want to see covered as a topic? Uh, history departments would never do that. Uh, so I I'm a bit pigeonholed uh, because uh, history departments are really tight uh, with, with their, if, if the university was doing it and someone from the history department went to that particular workshop, they would probably be ostracized from the history department. Uh, there's a departmental institutional jealousy uh, between those public academics and those who are not public academics that uh, is a real serious obstacle to normalization of that type of public academic. Uh, and, and one that may take two, three generations to go past, but which is why, yeah, very much we are individuals, and we do have to make our own inroads because there isn't going to be some institutional support within our fields of training that will blaze that path for us. We need to do it on our own. And that's maybe a pessimistic way of looking at it. You might also want to recognize that the people who can really do this are post-tenure. So you, doing this workshop for people who have just been tenured might be more effective. We have time for maybe one more question. So in, in my case, I, I was actually in the previous cohort of, of loose fellows and did a year in the, the State Department's Office of Religion and Global Affairs. And that, that experience was uh, sort of linked with a, uh, a grant project I had to do collective work on the intersection between religion and climate change. And that, um, the link between um, <coughs> my work and that collective work was really synergistic so that first I was sort of 
in conversation with um, peers interested in the same kinds of policy questions, but who were outside of government at the time, which is w was very helpful. Um, but then, um, with the particular funder, uh, we were obliged to be thinking in terms of policy relevant outcomes already. Uh, and so, uh, I think this question about policy relevance, um, sh it, it's not a question of translation that comes after the work is done, right? It's a question of research design. I think it needs to be baked in at the front end so that you're already, um, I mean, if, if, you, if you want to be putting your, uh, your research experience to this kind of use, um, I think that is a lot easier to do when the research itself follows from a question you understand to be policy relevant in the first place, right? Maybe you don't have to have that constantly in mind in every way, but um, you're not gonna suddenly invent the policy relevance after you find the results, right? So your question is on how, it's on how to build networks from the get-go? No, no, no. So once you're in the policy world, oh, yes. you're doing that, do you utilize scholars mm. who are not in the policy world to help you with your work? Mm. And then you're the bridge, so to speak? Or do you just do your independent research as a scholar? So uh, I've uh, personally taken the opportunity to make sure that uh, as many esoteric books on various different topics end up on the desks of people at, at NDI, for instance. Uh, Anne's was the exception where everybody sat down to read her book and then we discussed it. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that the point was we, we do need to support each other in our, our scholarships because we, we are that bridge, right? As individuals, as uh, a program, the AAR Loose Fellowship, uh, we are that bridge. And I think there's a personal responsibility that we have to uh, bring as much of that esoteric academic knowledge into the policy world and make it as relevant as possible. So yeah, there, there is an impetus on us as, as individuals and as the program. So uh, yes, but it's still, a, a, uh, it's in progress very much what the, while it's not the specific mandate of the Applied Religious Studies Committee, uh, it's very much in the ethos, I would say, of the Applied Religious Studies Committee, which is a new, a newer committee that also um, doesn't necessarily overlap with, but works in tandem with the public understanding religion of religion committee. So what I do want to say is that there are those outlets within the academy that are trying to um, meld together the binary, really, and take away those seams between them uh, to basically address your question. So there is a hopefully growing uh, demographic who's very much interested in, in basically addressing your concerns. So get in touch with the committee, basically. I mean, in my context at the State Department, I don't think anyone needs a book. <laughs> so what I've done as best I could was when I did briefings, I would work with academics and I try to summarize what they were, you know, that was relevant to. So for example, I was uh, responsible for briefing the ambassador on Iran. And even though sort of what, what Anne was saying, I didn't see myself as an expert on Iran. I just was in Iran, I was born in Iran, in Iran. And I know some things about Iran, but I became an expert on Iran in the process of, you know, interviewing um, many, many people and, uh, you know, synthesizing various books and, and in a briefing, I brought that academic literature to people, so that's how I used some of the academic work that I that I knew on Iran. But uh, 
you know, leaving someone, a book on someone's desk, no one, I mean, people have lots of books and they're just moving so fast and they're just, they just have so many demands on them, at least in my office, that I, I don't think anyone reads a book from cover to cover, you know, it just isn't, doesn't happen. <laughs> so I had a friend from the State Department traveling to Morocco uh, on behalf of an unnamed office and it was related to my book project, so I took a copy of my book and I put post-its on key pages and I wrote things like, read this paragraph, <laughs> and, wrote, and she took it on the flight with her and she read it. So there can, there can be ways to like get key individuals to read portions of your book, but you have to do the work for them. You have to tell them what part of it is relevant. No, basically that's just doing the evaluative annotated bibliography version of uh, in the public policy realm, really. So we're out of time. I wanted to thank everyone again for coming. I'd like to offer a warm uh, a round of appreciation for our panelists. So thank you and also congratulations, everyone. <laughs>